Thanks, Mana. Well, welcome to church, friends. My name's Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I think uh, as we come before God's Word today, it's right and appropriate to ask Him, the God of the universe, to shape us, to help us to understand what He has to say, so that we might go away with our world turned upside down as we see the way He sees the world. Let's pray together. Lord God, this morning we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to hear about your people and about you and about the way that you've acted throughout history. And this morning as we think about your character and we see up close the way Hannah saw you, we ask that through your spirit you would make your word come alive, that we might come out having seen the world the way you see it. Amen. What difference does it make to believe in God? What difference does it make to believe? I take it there are some people here amongst us this morning who who do believe in God. That's your kind of worldview. You think there is a God. And there might be some here today, and I hope there are people who are thinking about, do I believe in God? Is belief in God something I actually want to do? Is it something that I should do? And if, if, if I do, what difference does it make? I mean, really, what difference does it make believing in God? I don't mean the kind of superficial things, you know, like what you do on your Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings or, um, you know, the kind of principles you might have in place, the kind of moral standards you might have there, um, what type of music you like or what type of sport you play or, you know, this idea that you might say, well, I don't really want to get drunk as a general principle or I, I, I think sex is made for marriage and so I'll, I'll try and live that way. I'm not talking about those ways. What I'm talking about is how does God change who you are or does he? And should he? I'm talking about a much deeper level than just our kind of actions and our responses. In concrete, observable ways. What's different if you believe in God? How does your view of God affect your attitudes? How does your view of God affect what matters to you and what's unimportant? How does your view of God change what doesn't matter to you and the things that are insignificant? What about the way you view yourself, your understanding of life, purpose, why we're here? How does your view of God affect you? Believing in the God of the Bible makes and must make a phenomenal difference to our understanding of everything. But my hunch is, because this is what it's like for me, So often it doesn't. So often my belief in God doesn't really change that much. We can tend to view Christianity as, um, or even religion in general, as some kind of another piece in the puzzle that makes up my life. Another aspect that helps me think about, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian and, um, you know, it's another one of the, the, the preferences I have. You know, some people are tall, some people are short, some people are introverted, some people are extroverted, some people believe in God, some people don't. It's just one of those things that, you know, it's one of the additional extras that we have that kind of makes up who we are. It's a part of the, of the puzzle. But to believe in the God of the Bible is to see the whole world and life in a radically different way from someone who doesn't have that belief. And the reason why is the theme of this passage in 1 Samuel. What we'll see today is why belief in God changes everything. 
As we get to this part in 1 Samuel, you remember that 1 Samuel as a book follows the book of Judges uh, chronologically. Ruth kind of isn't in there. Uh, And so what's just happened through the book of Judges is God's people have been without a king. Uh, The last line of the book of Judges we looked at last week is on the screen. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever he wanted. That's the context that we're hearing about where God's people are at this time. With everyone doing whatever they want, whenever they want. No king, freedom. But it hasn't turned out too well. There's a national leadership crisis on their hands. Who will lead Israel? They're getting hammered from the nations around them. And 1 Samuel begins amid this kind of huge crisis of leadership by focusing on one seemingly insignificant country girl who's childless and is in deep distress and pain because she can't have kids. And you're like, why is this going on? But this week, we move from this small country girl to her view of the universe and her view of God. And we start to see why belief in God changes everything. Last time Hannah prayed, she was in a very different state of mind than in the passage Mana just read for us. She was distraught. She wept bitterly. She was an unhappy woman because of the pain of childlessness. But listen to the way that she speaks now at the start of this next section of chapter 2. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. It's a different woman, isn't it? She's kind of changed in her kind of excitement. But as you read those words on the screen there in your Bibles, it's, it's odd language, don't you think? It's odd language to be saying at the birth of a child because this child has come. Like, my horn is lifted up. Like, is this proof that unicorns exist? Is Hannah a unicorn? My horn is lifted up. There you go. I don't think it is. Sorry if I've just dashed your childhood dreams of unicorns and all things pretty and nice. But I don't think that's what's going on. But the view here, the imagery is actually animal imagery. It's right to kind of think animals. The next sentence, my mouth boasts over my enemies, is literally, my mouth is wide open over my enemies. It's this kind of picture of a triumphal animal ready to devour its prey. It's not a kind of little nice picture that's in front of us here. She's kind of, she's ready to devour I reckon the picture is something like a rhino, right? Imagine a rhino charging down its prey, smashing it out of the way, standing victoriously at the end over its prey, lifting its horn, its head up in glory, saying, how great is the God who's given me this victory with its mouth wide open, about to devour the dead body in front of it. That's what's going on here. You kind of get the sanitized version. It's graphic, it's violent, it's it's a powerful image. She starts a prayer with. I don't know how you pray. That's not normally the way that I would kind of respond to to a God who's done something great for me, or not to him, but in kind of those sort of terms. But it's all got to do for Hannah what God has done for her. Her heart rejoices in the God, the Lord, in his deliverance. Now, I've had the privilege of being at the birth of five children, Five, you say? You've only got four kids, Rowan. 
the first birth I was at was a friend of Sarah and mine called Anna. Uh, Anna was really the friend that introduced Sarah and I. She's a great friend for both of us. Um, they got married just after high school, uh, and they got pregnant uh, maybe nine months after they were married. They kind of so it was quite soon. They went aiming to have a kid. They were pretty freaked out. Dan, her husband, was pretty freaked out, and so they'd asked Sarah to be her support person. And so Sarah was like, "Yep, we'll be there." Anyway, we got the call. And I rushed down to the hospital, and I kind of dropped Sarah off. And Anna was like, "Oh, yeah, it's going to be ages. Just come in." So we're we're hanging out there. And then suddenly, kind of things went quite quickly. There's all these nurses and doctors. They're like, it's ready to go. And I'm in the room going, what am I doing here? Like, I don't want to be here. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to go now. And Anna kind of looked at Dan. And Dan looked pasty white. And he kind of, she's like, can you just stay? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Are you serious? She's like, yeah, and take photos. <laughs> it was one of those awkward moments where you're like, what do you do for a friend? Um, and so I stayed at the head of the bed and didn't move off it the whole time, uh, but was there for the birth of their first child. And I remember at that birth and at the other four births that I've been at with, with our kids, it was a pretty traumatic experience. But I don't think I've ever celebrated the birth of a child like a rhino with its horn in the sky, ready to kind of devour the prey in front of me because God has given me a child, Right? Hannah has just had Samuel, and this is how she responds. Maybe I'm just not very imaginative. I don't know. But it just didn't pop into my head to think, yes, rhino, devour, pray, God, sovereign. Like, what's going on? It's kind of a little bit over the top, isn't it? Come on, Hannah. I know, you've, I know the pain of childbirth that you haven't had. You've wanted a kid for so long, and now you've gone. I know it's a great deliverance for you, but why kind of, why the picture? And it's interesting. Her reply here to God in prayer sounds, if you know your Bible, just like the prayer Moses prayed after God wiped out the Egyptian army. I have a listen to Exodus 15. They've just gone through the Red Sea on dry land. The Egyptian army is piling in behind them. God has closed up the sea behind them. And the Egyptian army has been floating, sunk, gone. This is what Moses says. I will sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted. He's thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Do you see the similarities? My salvation, my strength, my horn. It's really what a horn is talking about. It's saying it's, it's strength. And what we begin to see again here is that Hannah's story stands at the beginning of 1 Samuel because there's a connection there's a connection between Hannah's story and the story of God's people, Israel. And there's, a, there's a connection between Samuel, her child, and the one who would come and be God's king on the earth. It's yet to be play, played out. But by the end of this prayer, we know it's something bigger. She's almost like a prophet. Uh, she's speaking of what God will do to the ends of the earth and his judgment to the ends of the earth. There's something bigger going on than just the occasion of Samuel's birth. But it's talking about Israel and what God will do for this nation and through this nation, the world. There's an expansive view in front of us as we hear this prayer. And for Hannah, she speaks this way because she sees God as he is. She sees that he's the incomparable God like no other. And when you understand who he is, 
Well, the world looks very different. Have a look at verse 2. She says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. She again is pointing to God in this. She's not being like, oh God, thank you so much for all the greatness you've done for me. Uh, Thanks that I've got this kid and it's worked out well and this baby's been born. All good and right things to say. What does she say? God is amazing. There is no one like him. Have you got your view of God right? And again, it makes me think back to Moses' prayer in Exodus 15. A little bit further on in verse 11. Listen to what uh, uh, Moses said there. Lord... Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? It's a big picture at the start of this book, and it's a picture of God. Those like Hannah, who know the God of the Exodus, know that there is no one like him. There's no one like this God. There is no power that exists, no person or thing or being like the true and living God. There is nothing like Him. No one compares to Him. He is holy. He is separate. He is pure. He is other. The holiness here is like a moral picture of His utter incomparability and purity. He is just so different. He's a rock. Firm and grounded protection offered security to people like no other. This is God. This God can't just be rolled up alongside our other preferences as an optional extra. The view Hannah has of this God isn't just something, another hope, another dream, another confidence, one among many. It's not some additional aspect of my life or a good choice or even the best choice among many options. Hannah and Moses both are saying, if you see God for who he is, there is no one like him. Nothing. Nothing compares There's no other goodness like his goodness. There's no other purity like his purity. There's no other security offered like his security. Hannah knew at this point, just like the Israelites coming out of the Red Sea dry. They knew the utter stupidity of allowing any other thing to rival this God. It's incomprehensible. (laughs) Who can part the sea and save people on dry land and take out a whole army? Who can bring life from death? Who can be like this God? There is no one besides him. Is that the God you believe in? Is that the picture of God you have? Nothing, no one compares or powerful, or mighty, or pure, phenomenally strong and good? Is he the rock on which your life is built? Is he the one whom all your desires are centered on? Is he the one whom your hopes are grounded in? Is he the one who is everything to you? Because he was for Hannah. 
Or has God become for you just one small part of your worldview? One good option among many. The option that you can subscribe to or not. Or even more than that, maybe we should subscribe to, but it's up to us. Apart from the way you spend your Sundays, apart from maybe some of your moral guidelines that you may or may not adhere to, Apart from what music you might listen to or when you come to church or what images you fill your mind with. What, aside from all those, a God that's an optional extra won't change your life much at all, will he? I mean, so what? But if you believe in the God Hannah believed in, if you see him as she sees him, if you see him as he is then your life will never be the same again. It will phenomenally change the way you view everything, what you live for and and why you do what you do. For this is the God who transforms everything. He's the transforming God. Have a look at verses 3 to 8 in this next section. Verse 3, Do not boast so proudly, or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The longer I've been a Christian, the more I've begun to realize that for me, pride does phenomenal damage to the way I view the world. That pride is really at the heart of so much of where we go wrong, of where we get things wrong. Um, the way I want to put myself as the one who is in control, or I put myself as, as praiseworthy or the center of kind of what happens. Pride is often the thing at the heart of our rejection against God. Now, it's taken me a while to work that out. I think I'll still keep working that out. But Hannah hits it as first cab off the rank. First thing she says when she sees God for who he is, is don't be proud. Why? Because when you see God for who he is, it changes your view of everything, including yourself. When you get who God is, you realize (laughs) we got nothing compared to him. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever recognized that? The God Hannah knows is the God of all knowledge. He knows us. I think it's this wonderful description here of of God. God isn't just some um, abstract religious idea that's out there, a a concept of people's imagination. I'd like to think of God as, and you know, someone else has their own God. It's just that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is related to everyone. He's related to you because He knows you. He, He knows everything. He knows everything about you, everything about me. There are no secrets hidden from him, no mysteries he hasn't uncovered. No things that I've said or you've said that he doesn't know about, no actions that we've done that he hasn't seen, no person that he doesn't know, no thought he hasn't heard. It's impossible to deceive God. But I try. (laughs) Don't you? In our pride and arrogance, We sometimes pretend God didn't see that. He doesn't know my real motive as to why I'm doing this. We pretend he might not have seen our actions or let that one slide through. We we pretend God is far less than he is. And so it enables us to live in a world where 
well, I'm a little more important, a little more at the center. I can rely on my actions and my deeds. And I find myself thinking that it all depends on what I do. But the God Hannah sees isn't like that. This God does not and will not ever answer to us, nor should he. It's incredibly arrogant to think that God, the one who made us and upholds us, should answer to our view of the world. Should say, why have you done this? You, I, des- I demand an answer from you. Have you ever had a kid say that? <laughs> I'm sure I did this as a child and I see it amongst our kids because they're probably like me. But they're like, that's not fair. You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> yes, I can. I'm your dad. Uh, you, 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 like, you can't sit there and say no. Like You're going to your room. No, I'm not. You just pick them up and take them upstairs and put them in their room. You're in your room. I'm dad. You're not. Yet, I think like that to God. Who are you? Maybe not as arrogantly as that. But I want to judge him by my standards. I want to hide things from him and, and I want to make myself just look a little bit better, a little bit more acceptable. The God of knowledge knows. He knows all. Just, just think about this for a second. He knows what my eyes have seen. He knows what tracks I've tried to cover up. He knows what anger comes from my mouth. The God of knowledge knows how much money I earn and what I do with it and how I'm generous with it and where I spend it. He knows when I sit in church whether I'm grumbling or not. He knows why I sit in church, whether it's because I I get who Jesus is and I trust Jesus or for some other reason, whatever that is. He knows if We honor our parents. He knows the way we speak of others when they're not around. The things we say, whether they're true or slanderous. He knows all. He sees all. The God of knowledge just knows. He reads my heart like an open book. We can't hide from him. And Hannah reminds us that he is the one who will weigh our deeds. It's not me who will weigh your deeds. It's not your parents, your husband, your wife, your mum or your dad, your boyfriend or your girlfriend. They're not the ones who are to, to weigh our deeds. Neither are our children the ones who will weigh our deeds. Our connect group leaders, they're not not the ones to weigh our deeds. Neither is our culture the one to weigh what is right and what isn't and the way we've acted and the way we haven't. None of them have the right to do that. It's the God of knowledge who will weigh our deeds. Now, when I hear that, knowing what he knows, it makes me a little uneasy. Does it have that effect on you? A little 
less certain about myself and my standing and my pride and my arrogance tend to kind of drip away a touch for he knows all and he will weigh all. That saying you might have heard from Christians in the past about we, we stand before an audience of one. We have one person in the audience to worry about. You know, some people are like, oh, it's just one of those Christian sayings. You know, it's a bumper sticker on the car. You know, it just, it's just one of those things. What that saying is bringing together is all of this. God knows all, he sees all and will weigh all. The only thing that matters in our life is how we respond before him. The opinion that matters most is his opinion. For whether you believe in him or not, the claim of Hannah and the claim of the Bible is that God is real. That he has made you and me. That we will stand before him on that last day and all will be bared. Do you see how when you view God the way God is, the way Hannah does, it changes everything? Well, the God that's on view in front of us here knows all, but that's not all. He's also all-powerful. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. You see here, his power just turns the normal order of the world upside down. Uh, Verse 4, the bows of warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. They are needy, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven. But the woman with many sons pines away. The God of the Bible is so different. His economy is so different from the way we view things. I remember in 2002, um, it was at the Olympics, the Winter Olympics. And Australia doesn't do very well in the Winter Olympics because we don't really have that much snow. Um, And I remember that um, we actually got someone through to the final in the Olympics of the speed skating. Uh, I don't know if you you saw it. The guy's name was Stephen Bradby. Australia like, oh, this is brilliant. This is the best we've ever done. Anyway, you you watch the kind of the the race going around. There's eight laps and they're kind of flying around this circuit going around. Anyway, Stephen Bradby just continually gets further and further behind. And everyone's like, yeah, what did you expect? It's Australia. It's hot in Australia. They don't really have ice. You know, this guy's probably been practicing on rollerblades or something, skimming around, and, and he just gets further and further behind, and you're like, how weak, how feeble does Australia look? You know, at that point, you're like, where, this is gone. On the last lap, on the last turn, before they come across, the first guy who's winning trips takes out the other two. He stands up, Stephen Bradbury, like this, across the line, taking gold. His face is like, I can't believe it. <laughs> and neither can anyone else. Australia won the gold medal because they tripped over. When you, when you see things from God's point of view, the strong don't look so strong anymore. You have a look here that the, the bows of the warriors are broken. And perhaps she's thinking of the Egyptians. Uh, in a few pages time that the Philistine army will appear and the people of Israel will tremble. And they'll have a reason to tremble before this mighty warrior, before this great Goliath. However, Hannah saw the warrior's bows in light of the God of all knowledge, by whom all actions are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, she said, smashed, shattered, like the Egyptian chariots sinking beneath the waters. 
This God demolishes human power and strength. He says, in my economy of things, the world is different. It makes me think, do I see human power the way God does? Do I look at human strength the way God does? Or do I see it the way I view the world? I need to be reminded who God is and who is really in control. Another side of the equation, you see that the feeble are clothed with strength. In a few weeks' time, we're going to see a pubescent shepherd boy, this little kid, pretty much, come with a couple of rocks in his shepherd's pouch and take out the Philistine giant, the one whom all Israel's army quivered before. Because in God's plan and economy, the Philistine giant was but a pawn and a prepubescent shepherd boy would be the king. (laughs) Unless you saw things the way Hannah sees them, you'd think that there's stuff going on in the world is just too powerful. We'd see our power and our strength in, in weird places or different from God. This is the God who is in control of death and life. He's the one who is in control of all things. The childlessness, um, the power of the others that are around. The picture Hannah has of God is really extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Do you see God as he is? With everything in his hands. Life, death, riches, poverty. Fame, insignificance. Everything is in his hands. Have you seen this God? Have you seen him as he is? And has he changed the way you view the world? Everything is in his control. Look at verse 8. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the garbage pile. He seats them with the nobleman and gives them a throne of honor. Nothing is in our control, nor the control of others or society or chance. The stock market doesn't control finances. The government doesn't determine people's happiness. This God does. Don't you think Hannah has an interesting view of the world? Like, it's very different from the world I observe with just my eyes, with my own faculties. Because it can seem like, well, someone else is in control so often. She's not describing the world as we normally experience it. But she's showing us the reality of how things are. When you know the true and living God, the God of all knowledge, who knows everything, sees everything, weighs everything... The God of all power. There is no one else like him. No one. How do you see the world? That's really the question that God is bringing up through Hannah's prayer this morning. How do you see the world? Power. Wealth. Security. Fears. Poverty. Death, life. Do you think you have what it takes to hold it all together? To kind of get through life and be coming out the end a winner? 
Do you think you have what it takes to avoid death? So often I tend to live as if I do. But when you see God as Hannah does, when you realize who he is, everything gets turned upside down. And the question is, where is this God of knowledge in your view of the world? Not just abstractly as some idea, like where is this idea of God for you? But how does he impact the way you live? Does he? How does he impact what you live for? What matters most? At the end of verse 8, two lines show us why believing in God has to radically change our attitude to everything. And it's because the victory will be his. The victory will be the one who knows all, who is all-powerful, who is in control of all things. Why? Look at verse 8. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He set the world on them. Do you see who he is? He's the creator. He's established everything. He made you. He sustains you. He's in control of you. The the world doesn't just exist on some set of predetermined kind of um, principles separate from God. He's the one to whom everything belongs. You belong to him. He is in control of it all. The winners in the end will not be the humanly strong, the powerful or the wealthy. Those that from our eyes, from our view, look like they have it together and they are having a great life and a good life. Those who win, those who live, will be those who trust the God Hannah sees. Who recognize their pride and arrogance and come to the God who is in control of all and say, I need to see things as you see them. I need to recognize myself as a creation rather than a creator. In verse 9, he guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness, for a man does not prevail by his own strength. (laughs) Now I need to have that on my wall somewhere to remind me each day the reality of how things are. Those who do not trust him, those who are not his faithful ones, are lumped together with the wicked in in verse 9. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you do or what you become, without trusting in God, without the God who set the world on its pillars, no one can prevail, no one can beat death, no one will win in the end, even if we've got the most amount of toys. It's no light point to have rejected this God. This prayer of Hannah's that starts out like just a a small prayer you'd expect at the birth of her child ends up being this wonderful picture of the God of the universe saying, do you see who he is? Do you see what he's about to do for Israel? Do you see what he has done for the world? Verse 10, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. You can't view that God as an optional extra. Or not and face no consequence. To set yourself against Him 
It's not just an inconsequential choice of preference. He's the upholder and maker of all. He is the king of the universe. To set or to treat anyone else as king, it's attempted mutiny. To the God who knows all. It's not like it's secret. It's not like, oh, I tried to be king, but I realized I couldn't be. The real king didn't find out. He knows all. He sees all. He is all-powerful. And those who do that, who commit mutiny, mutiny, and all of us have, will be shattered. We will get what we deserve. But what comes next is a hint at the answer that you and I need. For while we've rejected God as king, and we all have, there's a solution promise. Look at the end of verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Who is this rhino? Who is this one whose horn will be raised, whose strength will be raised at the end? If you think about it, the end of Hannah's prayer is extraordinary. You can understand her outlining the true judge. You get that his rule extends to the ends of, of the earth. No one's exempt from, from his, his, his judgment. But for Hannah to be speaking of a king, remember there is no king in Israel. Everyone's doing whatever they saw fit. It's just odd. Why is she speaking of God's king? There's no king there. There's never been a king in Israel. Why is Hannah speaking now about a king? But this insignificant country girl not only sees God as he is, but lets us in on what God is about to do. She's acting like a prophet here. Where did she get this knowledge? It seems the God of knowledge gave it to her. The king that she spoke of, she also called God's anointed. Do you know what the word is in Hebrew there for anointed? Messiah. Or in Greek, Christ. God's Messiah King, the Christ, was coming to fix Israel's self-governance problems, to stop the coup, to put things back in their right place, to be the one who would lead them as they should. Now, it's possible that Hannah had her own son Samuel in her mind as she said that. We can speculate that she might have. However, the words recorded just don't say who that king will be. At the start of the prayer, God, is, God raised up Hannah's horn, but now he will lift up the horn of his Christ. The rule, the glory, the judgment, the salvation of the one who will rule God's people forever. The story of the book of 1 Samuel could be described as an extended answer to this question. Who is God's king? Who is his anointed? Who is his Messiah? Many years later, another woman prayed a prayer that sounded remarkably like Hannah's. Remarkably. Have a look at this. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble conditions of his slave. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done this great thing for me, and his name is Holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. 
He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, mindful of his mercy, just as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. This woman said that prayer after the birth of her son, and her son's name was Jesus. Mary knew what Hannah knew and more, with more clarity. Mary had been told that her child, the one that she bore, was to be God's promised king. The leader you and I need. The the king whose kingdom would never end. And Mary knew that this king would turn the world upside down. For he was God the Son. He was God who came and died for us. Hannah's prayer really, in the story of the whole Bible, is an anticipation of what Mary said in Luke chapter 1 about Jesus. And the question for us is, for us who've seen God's promised King, that Jesus is the one who is promised here, who know that God has provided a solution to our rebellion against Him, He's provided a solution to the coup that we've attempted, who stood in our place and faced what we deserve for turning our backs on God well, we see that that Jesus is the one who's done it for us. And the question for us is this. Will you believe God with the clarity and truth that Hannah does? Will you see God the way Hannah sees God? Will you let the true and living God turn your view of everything, of knowledge, of power, of strength, of security, of happiness, of joy? Will you let your picture of God determine how you view all those things? Your life and my life depend on how you view God. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we are so thankful for what you've provided for us in your son Jesus. That the king has come and we have seen him. That he has taken the penalty that we deserved and has fixed that relationship between us and you. Lord, We thank you for showing yourself to us through Hannah's prayer as you really are. We admit that so often we think we are at the center of the universe. We view the world the way we like to view it. The way that fits with what we want. But we do great injustice to you and offer you incredible arrogance. Father, we ask that today you might put Hannah's picture of you, the real picture of what you are like, front and center for our lives. That we might go out of here today and think through every aspect of what choices we make and and the way that we live and put them underneath your rulership and see them in the light of the way that you see everything. Father, it is such a privilege to know you and to know that you love us because of Jesus. And we pray we might come out of here today joyful like Hannah at the way you save. Amen.